Thank you for joining me for this month's edition, February. The Home Run Club, can you believe it? Already diving deep into the year. And I trust and pray the Lord is with you and giving guidance to you as you continue to grow as a family. I'm sure many of you made commitments and resolutions to start off the new year, and I hope you're continuing to grow in those. But mostly, I pray you're growing deeper in your relationship with Christ. I had a lot of time in this last month to really spend and focus on going deeper in the Lord, and I'm seeking to do that. And it's been healthy and beneficial and positive for my life. So know those moments where you're growing in the Lord is really big. And you know the phrase the Lord gave me in my heart is this, no time spent with the Father is wasted. We've heard that before, but I experienced that some in my personal life, and it was of great benefit to me. And as we continue to move through this month of February, I hope and pray you have a joyous time celebrating with those you love as we celebrate Valentine's. And then also, just continue to grow in your relationship of influence in others for the cause of Christ. In the society that we're in, I believe more and more, the example and attitude of Christ that would emulate from our own lives, it's what's going to make an impact and make a difference. So I pray that's happening for you. We're going to dive into a message today that Pastor Steve shared talking about loving people. I will challenge you to take a moment and think about somebody in your life that's hard to love. I heard a phrase not long ago that said, it's easy to love Jesus. It's a lot more difficult to love Judas. And that certainly is a true case. And I hope as you listen to this message from Pastor Steve that it will encourage your heart and challenge you in your walk with Christ. And I, again, just thank you for partnering with us and helping us be able to produce messages like this to go out and make a difference in our community, in our world. So here we go. Enjoy this message as Pastor Steve shares. Love God, love people, and make disciples. Love God, love people, and make disciples. And each one of these kind of parts of the mission are borrowed from very distinct phrases in the passage of Matthew. The love God and love people one is borrowed from Matthew chapter 2, verses 37 to 34, where somebody asked Jesus, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus replied, it's love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. He goes, this is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commands. It's really important that Jesus said that all the law and the prophet hang on these two commands because there were people who were critics of Jesus who were trying to spread rumors and say Jesus is giving a new teaching that departs from our tradition. You should watch out for him. He might be a false prophet. But Jesus says, no, 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 I, I'm not departing from that path. I am the ultimate consummation of it. Just a few chapters earlier in Matthew, Jesus invites his closest disciple, Peter, James, and John, on top of a tall mountain. And it said that Jesus, while they were there, Jesus' face shone like the sun and his clothes became as white as light. It said, just then appeared before them Moses and Elijah talking with Jesus. Moses would have been one of the most revered people in Jewish history because he was the author of the law. And Elijah was the most famous prophet in all of Jewish history. So if Jesus is standing in the presence of both Moses and Elijah, that would have been evidence that he is part of that same ark. Part of that same tradition, part of that same legacy, which is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, don't think I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I haven't come to abolish them. I've come to fulfill them. 
When Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your mind, he's quoting the Torah. He's quoting the very words of Moses. This is found in Deuteronomy chapter 6. And when he says, love your neighbor as yourself, he's quoting Moses again. That's a verse that's found in Leviticus. He's reminding his audience that none of these commands are new. They're a reiteration of what they already know or maybe what they have forgotten to do. In Jewish tradition, if you counted every single commandment, there would be 613 commandments to follow. And Jesus is trying to simplify the grid to only two. Even the Ten Commandments are split neatly into two groups. The first four, have no other gods before me, don't make any graven images, honor the Lord's name and keep the Sabbath. Those are all love God commandments. And then the next six, honor your parents. Don't kill, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't commit false witness, don't covet. Those are all what? Those are all love people commandments. Love is to honor others' lives, marriages, possessions, their reputation and their well-being. And love would have been loving somebody who is part of your tribe. It would have meant loving your neighbor. In fact, the very last commandment, Exodus 20, 17, do not covet, includes the word neighbor three times. When Jesus uh, gets quoted by Matthew as saying, love your neighbor, he's using a Greek verb, agapao. And agapao is defined as having a preference for, or taking pleasure in, or to prize above all other things, to be unwilling to do without, and to long for something or someone. That's loving God, loving others, Making, and now we'll kind of hit on that making disciples, Pete. Matthew 28 says this, Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you even to the end of the age. So love God, love people, make disciples. So let's circle back to that whole, what exactly does it mean to love neighbor? What does it mean to love neighbor? Some scholars define the word neighbor in this passage with the word placeon, as defined by any other human, a neighbor is any other person, irrespective of nation or religion, with whom we live or whom we happen to meet. That's, the, that's how Jesus is using that term. But, make note of this. When Jesus' audience heard this for the first time, that's not how they would have interpreted neighbor. Remember how neighbor shows up three times in the Tenth Commandment? When did God give Israel the Ten Commandments? When they were wandering through the wilderness. What neighbors did they have when they were wandering through the wilderness? Only themselves. So when they would have heard neighbor, they would have confined neighbor to a very specific group, which would have been people of Hebrew heritage, people who are following the God of Israel. So when they heard neighbor, all they heard was people who are in my tribe, people who are in my ethnic tribe, people who are in my political tribe, people who are in my religious tribe. My neighbor is only and ever people who are just like me. In ancient tradition, the neighbor only would have been part of that family. At, at, at best, maybe it was a foreigner, but that would only be the case if they had converted to Judaism from another religion. But Jesus, in the passage that we're about to spend some time in, in Luke chapter 10, flips this whole definition of neighbor on its head. And some of you have likely heard this passage before. A man came to Jesus once and said, hey, I, I want to follow all the commandments. What do I need to do? And Jesus says, we need to love your neighbor. And then he goes, well, who is my neighbor? He's like, I got a follow-up question. And Jesus is like, let me unpack that for you. And this is what we read in Luke chapter 10. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. If you've ever had a chance to travel that road, I've been to 
Jerusalem more than a few times. And the road from Jerusalem to Jericho is, is, is a rocky, hilly road that's marked by canyons on both sides. It can be kind of a scary place if you're traveling alone. It says they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. And a priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So to a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, and if you were a Jewish audience, as soon as you heard Samaritan, like your heart stopped in your throat. Because Jews did not associate with Samaritans under any circumstances. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, he came to the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. And he went to him and bandaged his wounds and pouring on oil and wine. Then he took the man on his own donkey and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave him to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said. And when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses that you have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law said, the one who had mercy on him. And Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Go and do the same thing. Be that kind of person to the people that you come across. So let me ask you this question. Why did the priest and the Levite, both people who would have been schooled in passages that said, love your neighbor as yourself, they could have quoted that to you chapter and verse. Why did they pass over on the other side of the road? They didn't just pass by, they went out of their way to avoid him. Why do you think that was the case? I remember when I was growing up and I heard this lesson in Sunday school, they, I heard kind of two theories. One, they were mean. They just didn't like people. So they went out of their way to avoid him. And the other one was like, they were super busy. They had things to do and places to be. That's why I avoided them. Anybody ever hear these theories about why they passed over on the other side of the road? There is another possible answer to this question. I think sometimes the priest and the Levite, even though they're fictional characters in this story, um, we, they, get, they get a bad rap. Because here's what we need to know. The truth is, all they know about this victim is that he is, has been beaten, he is naked, and he is unconscious. And from a distance, it is safe to assume that the victim is already, he's already dead. And what is the problem for them if he's already dead? Well, not only can they not help him, but Jewish law says this in Leviticus chapter 21. A priest must not make himself ceremonially unclean for any of his people who die, except for a close relative, such as a mother or a father, a son, a daughter, his brother, or an unmarried sister who is dependent on him since she has no husband. For these people, and only these people, is a priest allowed to make himself unclean. He must not make himself unclean for people related to him by marriage or so defile himself. He can be in the presence of his dead brother, but he can't be in the presence of his dead sister-in-law. That's how narrow the grid is. Because if you as a priest come into contact with any dead body, you are disqualified from ministry for a season because you are now ceremonially unclean. We We learn later in the book of Numbers that there are a group of people who wanted to celebrate the Passover, which was like Easter and Fourth of July all rolled into one for the Jewish people. And it said that they wanted to celebrate Passover, but they'd been in the presence of a dead body. And Moses told them, he's like, you got to wait a couple days before you can celebrate because you are ceremonially unclean. 
So what's the risk for the priest and the Levi if they end up being anywhere near a dead body? They are unclean. And as such, they're disqualified from doing the work and the ministry of temple service, which is their only job. So now, is it able for, are, are we able to give the priest and the Levite a little bit more empathy than we did before? Because all they're trying to do is follow the code. They're saying, if I make myself unclean, I can't serve the people of God the way that I want to. Like, I can't show up for church and do the thing that all of the people who are at church are expecting me to do. Their jobs include offering sacrifices and worship rituals to help people uh, honor God. So in the story, maybe it's not that the priest and the Levite are cold, hard-hearted people. They just don't want to jeopardize their ability to serve the church well. If they have to choose between their position and a person, they're going to choose their position. Because that allows them, in their minds at least, to help more people. But the Samaritan has a different point of view. It says the Samaritan took pity on him. Instead of going away from the man, the Samaritan went towards him. It says he bandaged his wounds, applying oil and wine. So oil would have been like a first century equivalent of Vaseline, right? And wine would have been his, the bacitracin. He's trying to sanitize the wounds, and he's trying to heal them. He put him on his own donkey. He brought him to an inn and continued to care for him. And as I was working on this passage yesterday, something jumped out at me that I had never seen before. It said this. It says, and the next day. Like, I, I had stopped. I always thought that, like, he took him to the inn, dropped him off, and went on his business. But he didn't. Like, he slept in the room with somebody that he'd never met before. Like, that's risky on its own level, right? He spent the night with this guy. And then the next day, he gave the innkeeper two denarii, which would be the equivalent in modern times of about $700 in cash. And he gave him his credit card to just start a tab for any additional expenses. Now, how, how many of us feel comfortable doing that for a stranger in these days? He sacrificed his time, and he sacrificed his money, and he sacrificed his safety, and he sacrificed his convenience, and he sacrificed uh, part of his business. So he actually like, stopped short of doing some of the things that he needed to do. So here's what I love about this story. It reminds us that loving people requires seeing others with compassion. If you're following in your outline, it's seeing others with compassion. And what I love about this story is that it reminds us that the Samaritan had eyes. Like if the priest and Levite had like laser focus and they had blinders on, the Samaritan, his peripheral vision was entirely opened up to what was happening around him. He wasn't just kind of like charging towards the thing that he had to do. He was, he was walking a pace that if somebody was in need or if somebody was in crisis, he could, he could see him and he could honor him and he could respond to him. Compassion is an interesting word. Um, some of you remember the movie that came out a few years ago called The Passion of the Christ. In Old English, passion literally means to suffer, to experience pain. And calm means what? With. So if you have compassion for somebody, it means that you choose to step into their pain. Now, I don't know about you, but most of my life is organized on how to avoid pain, both my pain and the pain of other people, let alone diving into it. Diving into it. I had a professor once who said, he heard a story about an incredibly wealthy businessman who said, you know what, the only reason I, I fly, uh, after flying 
commercial for years and years and years and years and years. Because I only ever fly private now is like, because I don't want to be around people who bum me out. It's like, I don't, I just don't want, I don't want drama. I don't want pain. I don't want chaos. I don't want weirdness. I just, like, I just want to do my, I just want to do my life. So last night, uh, we were playing indoor soccer, uh, not, not we, when I say we, I meant my daughter was playing an indoor soccer game, and um, if you've ever been to a soccer stop on a Saturday night, you know that some of these games, can get, they can get a little bit rough and tumble. Like, indoor soccer is not, it's like kind of a mis mix between soccer and hockey. And um, there was one particular athlete who, you know, God love her, was really aggressive, and, um, and she kind of tangled it up with my daughter, and as my daughter was falling down, she took her jersey and pulled as hard as she could and ripped it wide open. <laughs> And I was like, whoa, somebody has anger issues, you know, like, and I have to confess, like, my first instinct towards that, towards this sweet 16-year-old girl that I don't know anything about was not compassion. Like, mine's like, what in the world is the matter with you? And I want to, like, try to get, like, my, my angry glare at her coach across the bench, like, get your people in line. This is nonsense, right? How many of us, our first instinct when somebody does something that is offensive to us is, how, how many of us immediately go to judgment? Like, what in the world is the matter with you? Like, who were your parents? And how can I round them up and teach them a thing or two about how to get this straight? Like, we live in a world where we make snap judgments about people, right? Which is why, like, short videos that we see on the internet are so dangerous. Because a lot of times, the only context we have is from whenever anybody started filming. We don't know what happened five seconds before that. We don't know what happened five minutes before that. We don't know what happened five years before that. And somebody once told me this. They said, you don't know anything about anybody until you know their story. You know anything about anybody until you know their story. And like, I have to confess, my first instinct towards this, this girl that we were playing soccer against last night was judgment. But the truth is, there are things that are going on in her world that I don't know anything about. I don't, I don't know anything about her mental health journey. I don't know anything about her relationships. I don't know anything about her home life. I don't know anything about her struggles in school. But is it possible that all I saw was the tip of her iceberg and don't have any understanding for what's going on underneath the waterline? So let me ask you this question. Are there people in your life who drive you crazy? Don't raise your hands. <laughs> Are there people in your life that you struggle to show grace, tenderness, kindness, and compassion towards? Um, my guess is that if you're honest with yourself and with God, the answer is, yeah, I've, I, I can come up with a long list for you right now. Why is that? Because somewhere we have told ourselves a story about what is true about that other person. Somewhere along the way, we gave ourselves permission to stand in judgment over that person rather than to see that person with compassion. Like I just, I want to tell you this, this hard truth. Guess what? No matter how you and I try through our own willpower and flesh to see other people through Jesus' eyes, we can't do it. Having a lens that sees other people as God sees them is a gift and a grace from God and God alone. So if we're stuck loving people, maybe the first prayer should be, God, will you give me eyes that I don't have? Will you let me see something about this person that I can't see? Because here's the truth. Every single person that we come into contact with has been created in the image of God. True or false? True. Now, but when I want to sit in judgment over somebody, I, I want to, I'm pretending that that's false. This person is less than me. They are other than me. They are beneath me. So I, will, I, I, I get to tell them what's what. And God says, no, 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 no. That person 
is created in the image of God. Here's how I like to think about it. Every single person is a mirror that reflects the image of God. How many of you have ever seen a mirror break? It's not fun. Sometimes, if you're lucky, a mirror will break into like three big chunks, and then you can carry it out to the garbage can. How many of you have had a, a mirror break into a million splinters? That's not fun. Have you noticed that the more broken we are, the harder it is for us to reflect the image of God? But if somebody is alive and breathing and they're created in the image of God, even if, they are, if, even if they are guilty of the most vile things that you can consider, is there a splinter of them that still reflects the image of God? Because, again, we live in a world that loves to make things really black and really white right out of the gate for every single person. We like to believe that there are some people who are pure evil. And the answer is, if they're created in the image of God, and everybody is, there is a glimmer of godliness in them, even if it's just a speck. Yes? If that's true, in order for us to love others well, sometimes the prayer is, Lord, help me find the splinter of your image. Let me find the splinter of your image in this person. And when I have gone left in my relationships and when my heart has gotten hard and when I have tended towards disdain or resentment or even hatred, it's because I stopped believing that that person was created in the image of God, that that person mattered to God, and if they mattered to God, they should matter to me. How do we see people with compassion? We do it by having God's eyes. And we cannot, there are no tools in our culture that teach us to do that. My friends, that is an act and a gift and a grace from the Holy Spirit. So if you're stuck on loving people well, say, Lord, will you give me eyes to see what only you can see? Will you, will you give me spiritual x-ray vision? Will you allow me to penetrate the surface of what I see in another person's life or heart or actions or behavior that reminds me that you matter to them? Now, does that mean that we don't have to be... Um, that we don't have to take assessment or accountability of people's wrong behaviors? No. But it means that we, can value, that we can value the person, even if the behaviors are wrong and they need to be held accountable for them. Loving people God's ways requires seeing others with compassion. Loving people God's way requires caring for their needs, if you're following along in your blanks, caring for their needs as we would our own, caring for their needs as we would our own. The scripture says, love your neighbor as yourself. Some of us struggle to love neighbor as ourselves because we just don't love ourselves very much. Now, let me be clear. There is a version of loving self that is like egomaniacal and narcissistic, right? There's the Greek story of Narcissus, who is the person who was like so in love with their own image that they stared in the water and they starved to death, right? I'm not talking about that. There are some of us who don't have a healthy love for ourselves because somewhere along the way, somebody told us um, that, we were, that we were shameful people, that we were broken people, and that we were unlovable people. And I, I know that a lot of us, like, in our gut, we're like, well, I know that's not true. The Bible says that I'm seen and that I'm loved and I'm known and God loved me so much that he went to the cross for me. But the truth is, some of us still have an ongoing struggle with shame. This belief that because of something that we did or because of something that was done to us, we are forever and irretrievably broken. That we're incomplete. That we are unlovable and unworthy of love. And if we're walking around 
with an anchor of shame, it gets really hard for us to love others as we love ourselves because we just don't love ourselves. And one of the privileges that we have at Winning at Home is working with counselors and coaches to help people do the work to kind of follow that thread back into their past and be able to say, what, was, there, was there a marking event or series of events that caused you to believe l things about yourself that God says are untrue? So this is just a little sidebar here. If there is a part of your journey where you feel shame, it's going to be hard for you to treat others as equals or people who are loved or people who matter. So just, just know that. If we don't love ourselves, if we don't see ourselves the way that God sees us, it's going to be hard for us to see others the way that God sees them. But loving other people God's way means caring for their needs as we care for our own. So let me ask you this question. What needs are easy needs for us to care for in other people? Like Maslow did his little mountain of the hierarchy of human needs. The easiest needs for us to give people are what? Like food, shelter, and water. Like, I remember when I was at a church on the east side, we're like, hey, let's run marathons and raise money for people who don't have clean water. We're like, well, everybody should have clean water. That's a loving and kind and merciful and responsible thing to do. Let's do that. It is easy to provide for basic needs for strangers, yes? It's also easy to provide for basic needs for friends. But when we start working up the ladder a little bit, it can get a little bit harder to care for those needs. Because what is, what is one need that people have these days that is kind of new to modern times. I would say that if there is an emotional need that people have in our culture that is new, it's a longing for community. And I know that one of the heartbreaks around COVID for so many people was the fact that it isolated people. But how many of you know that it doesn't take a, a pandemic to isolate people? I heard somebody say that they did a, a study about some people who had been radicalized online towards racist and extremist groups. And what they found is that the, the, the theory was like, oh, we're going to go back in their history and we're going to find out that they were raised in families that held these kind of values. And more often than not, they found that that wasn't the case at all. And that the people who found their ways into like dark corners of the dark web, engaging in dark communities, thinking and doing dark things, was sparked by the fact that they felt terribly alone and they were looking for a place to belong. And the only place that would accept them were places that ended up believing things that they were inherently uncomfortable with. We live in a world, like, what's the, what's the backstory behind terrorist groups and gangs? Is it, they give people a sense of family, a sense of purpose, a sense of belonging. And I think that a lot of us, we say, well, you know, if there are people in our communities who kind of keep to themselves or they're, they're loners or they feel a little bit off or they make me feel uncomfortable, uh, for my own safety and my protection, I'm going to steer clear of them. And, and again, like, that's not, a, <laughs> at its core, that's not an unwise instinct. But how many of us would much rather write a check so that somebody could have clean water than invite a stranger into our home or our small group? But is that love? Well, 100% is. So the question that I want us to be thinking about as we wrestle with this passage is, God, will you show me what it means to identify and meet needs for other people in a way that honor them and affirm them and welcome them into our space? 
Many years ago, I was pastoring a church. We had an office in the downtown district in a suburb of Detroit. And there was a guy who came pretty regularly. I, I think his name was Nathan. And he would come and he would say, uh, hey, Steve, I'm a drug addict and I'm hungry. And can you give me money for food? And kind of like our, our baseline was like, we won't give you money for food. But I remember one day he came in. I was like, um, hey, I, I keep stuff to make deli sandwiches for myself in the office fridge. Why don't you come in? And I'll make him a sandwich. So I made him a sandwich and he's like, yeah, I can't eat that. That's got turkey and I'm a vegetarian. And I have to tell you that in my mind, I went by, you'll, you'll eat what I give you and you'll like it. You know, like beggars can't be choosers today, bro. Like you came, you came to me in need. But what, it, what, what did it mean? What, what it, I felt <laughs> overwhelming conviction of the Holy Spirit at that moment. And I felt like God was saying to me, Steve, he has so little leverage over the choices that he gets to make in his life these days. Will you take a half a second and take the turkey off that sandwich as a way to honor his dignity and affirm him as a man? And there was a part of me who's like, Lord, I did not get him into this mess. It's not my responsibility to get him out of it. And he's like, I'm not asking you to do either of those things. I'm asking you to love him here now. And it might not happen this week. God is going to give you opportunity in 2024 to meet the needs of people in your life in ways that might stretch you, but will be an amazing gift for them. The story is told that during the British bombardment of London in World War II, there was a statue of Jesus that was heavily damaged. Uh, his body was remained standing, but his, his hands had been broken off during the chaos and the destruction of that chapel. And they say that different artisans and sculptors and architects all came together and they're like, hey, how can we fix the statue? And they determined that there wasn't any clean way to reattach hands to Jesus without making it look really weird. So here's what they did. They put a plaque at the bottom of the statue and left the hands off. And it said this, Christ has no hands but ours. Christ has no hands but ours. So the question that I want you to wrestle with as you go through this year is when people who have needs that you have opportunity to meet to ask this question, Lord, what might it look like for me to be your hands to this person in this moment? And when I went back to my encounter with Nathan, I was like, Lord, I have a lot of things about his life that I would like to rearrange. He's like, all I need is for you to be he doesn't need your mind, he needs my hands. He doesn't need your opinions, he needs my mercy. And that's what, that's what I love about the story about the Good Samaritan. Jesus said, who was the one who was his neighbor? And the teacher of the law said, the one who showed mercy to him. We are a culture that's really short on mercy these days, aren't we? We're like long on judgment, we're deep on critique, we are short and shallow on gentleness and mercy, and yet that's what love looks like. There are a lot of us who came from very well-meaning church traditions that said, the way that I get you to follow God is I beat you and I shame you and I intimidate you into repenting. Some of us came from those environments, yeah. What, is, what does Romans say? It says it's God's kindness that leads us to repentance. There are a lot of us who are like, our culture needs to repent. Guess what? You're not wrong. What's the best way to lead them to repentance? Kindness, kindness, kindness. Because if people don't believe that you like them, they're not going to really care about anything that you have to say. 
So part of the way that we as the people of God build a foundation and we clear a path for people to hear the gospel is through our gentleness and our love and through our kindness. It is through caring for others' needs as we would our own. And then finally, and I think this is already implied, if you're following along in your outline, loving people God's ways will be uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly. Uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly. And it will be beautiful all the same. How many of you are, are parents who have brought small people into the world? Yes? Anybody ever done that? Had a child? How many of you know that parenting from day one is uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly? Yeah. If you're kids, we don't resent you. We're glad that you're here. But like the truth is, you did come with the price tag, okay? Just because it's been uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly. And guess what? It was that way in every stage of their development, right? It was costly. They, they, weren't, they didn't cost a ton of money when they were little, but like it cost you sleep, yes? And some of you are like, I would pay $1,000 for a good night of sleep right now. Uh, most of us, when they get to like 18, 19, we've got ours, I've got one that's in college, one that's headed off to college. We are sleeping fine uh, until we wake up in the middle of the night remembering that we've got college bills to pay, right? So costly is a thing for us. Just because loving our children is costly and inconvenient and uncomfortable, would we trade it for a second even on our worst day? No. Why? Because they're treasures and gifts from God. So when we think about people under our own roof, we're like, yeah, that sacrifice is worth it every single time because of love. Somebody once said this, Craig Rochelle said, a sacrifice is giving up something you love for something you love more. Giving up something you love for something you love more. So we would sacrifice sleep, energy, maybe even career advancement. Why? Because we love our kids and we care about their well-being and we wanted to be at their football, basketball, and soccer games. And maybe we pass them on a promotion so that we could get there. And in the moment, our friends are like, you are crazy, and you're like, it's going to be worth it. And it was, yes? So then let me ask you this question. What if we loved God's kids that don't live under our roof and it's uncomfortable, inconvenient, and costly? Is it still beautiful in the end? And is there a day when we'll stand face to face with Jesus and he will say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Thank you for loving my people in my name well. Friends, I have never had an encounter in my life where I have looked back in the rearview mirror and I have sacrificed time, energy, blood, sweat, tears, or resources for somebody else in an act of obedience to God's mission in his kingdom and regretted it. Have you? So this is just a gentle reminder to be able to say, just because it's not easy doesn't mean it's not worth it. So what does that look like here at Family Church? Well, I think some of the basic ways, and, and hopefully if you've been here for a while, you already know this, it's kind of baked into the DNA here, what are some of the basic ways that we can love people within this family of God is through serving. We, we meet people's physical, spiritual needs through serving, uh, through giving. We can, we can provide kingdom resources for people who might not be able to afford it through our sacrificial giving. And then finally through gathering. Not just gathering when there's like 19 inches of snow outside, but gathering when there are small groups 
where we could walk with people when they're stuck. This last week, uh, my wife and I were trying to drive back from our son's basketball game in Wyoming, and our alternator blew out right, right in front of the castle in Granville, right? And so who do we call? We called a friend uh, from our small group who lives in our neighborhood who came out and got us. But if you're, not, if you're not investing in relationships, guess what? When you, need, when you need relationships, we don't have any. And again, we don't invest in relationships so that we can get favors returned to us. But part of the blessing of community is that when you get stuck, and you will get stuck, there are people who can lift your hands up, like Aaron and Hur did for Moses when he was weak and tired and frail. Loving God, loving people, making disciples. Loving God and loving others are not two separate domains. There is a fierce degree of overlap between those two values. They are intimately connected. And I've been reading through the book of 1 John in my own scripture reading over the last week, and I came across these verses in 1 John chapter 4. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There's no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother or sister whom they have seen cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother or sister. The opposite of fear isn't courage. The opposite of fear, according to 1 John, is love. There's a lot of talk in the truth about how, uh, in the church these days, about how we have to stand up for truth, and we do. But I'll make a confession to you. It is a whole lot easier for me to stand for truth than it is for me to walk in love. It's a whole lot easier for me, because once, because standing for truth is just like, do I know the truth and can I defend it? Yes. Walking in love is hard. It asks of us to make sacrifices, great and small, every single day. So let me ask you this question, or a question for you to kind of walk home with. What person did you struggle to love this week? What person did you struggle to love this week? Was it somebody under your own roof? Was it somebody in your neighborhood? Was it somebody in your place of work? Is it a politician that you've never met before? Who did you struggle to love this week? And what was at the root of that struggle? Was it pride? Was it fear? Was it anger? Was it envy? As you walk through the rest of this week, I want you to look for patterns. So you'll say, Lord, if there is more than one person that I struggle to love, and I struggle to love them for the same reasons, maybe you're trying to point to an issue in my heart that needs to get addressed. If there is a consistent and chronic barrier to love in me, Lord Jesus, will you in your mercy shine a spotlight on it so that together we can root it out? So that I don't have to walk another day at less than optimal levels of love. So as we look about our life application, this week I want you to commit to serving those around you as much as you love yourself. Consider how you can serve, give, or gather more this year. As you look at your outline 
Why don't you say, as a result of today's message, I will. And it could be as simple as saying, I will spend some time in silence. Saying, Lord, show me why I don't love these people. Or maybe I'll spend some time in prayer. Because Jesus says, one of the ways that we love people is by praying for them and blessing them. He says, you want to follow me? Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless people who drive you crazy. So it could be that all you say is like, Lord, I'm going to bless people that I don't like. I'm going to do it every day this week and see what you do in me and through me and for me. But if you're new to this whole conversation about church, about faith, about Christ, about love, I want to, I want to let you know this. What we read in 1 John is true. God is love. And the reason that God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to this earth to have compassion for us, to be our good Samaritan, to walk through our darkest nights, our most challenging moments, is because he loves us. The reason that Jesus died on a cross is so that you and I could be forgiven for the offenses that we committed against God, against others, and, and even against ourselves. And if you've never had a moment where you have come to God in humility and clarity and say, Lord, I've been wrong. I need to be forgiven so that I can be restored into right relationship with you, we want to give you the opportunity to do that today. Um, you can go out and, and talk to somebody at the lobby, or you can uh, check off on the app or on a Connect card to be able to say, I want to make a first-time decision to follow Jesus, or I would like to rededicate my life to Christ. So let me pray for us, and then we'll wind up our time today. Father God, I thank you for your love for us. Thank you that you are love, and that you are inviting us to receive that love, to know that love, to walk in that love, to model that love, every day and in every way. And Lord, if we have been withholding love from people in our lives, either intentionally or unintentionally, I pray that you would just convict us. Not to shame us, but to set us free. Lord, if there are themes or trends or patterns in our lives that are inhibiting our ability to love well, identify those for us so that you can free us to something better, something richer, something new. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So I hope and pray that as you listen to those words, it will be encouraging for you and will challenge you to continue to grow in your depth of loving people. And I thank you for praying for us and supporting us here as we seek to do exactly that. It's why Winning at Home exists, to help and guide people in their walk, not only with Christ, but in their walk with each other. And our ministry has become an organization that is moving. I always say lots of moving parts these days as we've grown, as we've added new counselors, new locations. We continue to see our busyness expand. But I'm trying to make sure in all the busyness we are taking time to deepen ourselves in the walk with Christ, thus these type messages, and also just your continued prayers that we would do just that, to deepen in Jesus, make an impact for the Lord in what he has called us to do. So thank you for your partnership, and may the Lord bless you as you go through this month, and thank you again from Winning at Home.